Chapter Fifteen of Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail by Ezra Meeker and Howard Driggs. Chapter Fifteen: Blazing the Way Through Natchez Pass. The Natchez Pass Trail, along which I must make my way, had been blazed by a party of intrepid pioneers during the summer of 1853. $15,000 had been appropriated by Congress to be expended for a military road through the pass. I saw some of the work, but do not remember seeing any of the men who were improving the road. I stuck close to the old trail, making my first camp alone, just west of the summit. I had reached an altitude where the night chill was keenly felt, and with only my light blanket missed the friendly contact of the faithful ox that had served me so well on the plains. My pony had nothing but browse for supper, and he was restless. Nevertheless, I slept soundly, and was up early, refreshed, and ready to resume the journey. Such a road as I found is difficult to imagine. How the pioneer trailblazers had made their way through it is a marvel. It seemed incredible that forests so tall and so dense could have existed anywhere on earth. Curiously enough, the heavier the standing timber, the easier it had been to slip through with wagons, there being but little undecayed timber or down timber. In the ancient days, however, great giants had been uprooted, lifting considerable earth with the upturned roots. As time went on, the roots decayed, making mounds two, three, or four feet high, and leaving a corresponding hollow into which one would plunge. For the hole was covered by a dense, short evergreen growth that completely hid from view the unevenness of the ground. Over these hillocks and hollows, and over great roots on top of the ground, they had rolled their wagons. All sorts of devices had been tried to overcome obstructions. In many places where the roots were not too large, cuts had been taken out. In other places the large timber had been bridged by piling up smaller logs, rotten chunks, brush, or earth, so that the wheels of the wagon could be rolled over the body of the tree. Usually three notches would be cut on the top of the log, two for the wheels and one for the reach, or a coupling pole to pass through. In such places the oxen would be taken to the opposite side, and a chain or rope would be run to the end of the wagon tongue. One man drove, one or two guided the tongue, others helped at the wheels. In this way, with infinite labor and great care, the wagons would gradually be worked over all obstacles and down the mountain in the direction of the settlements. But the more numerous the difficulties, the more determined I became to push through at all hazards, for the greater was the necessity of acquainting myself with the obstacles to be encountered, and of reaching my friends to encourage and help them. Before me lay the summit of the great range, the paths, at five thousand feet above sea level. At this summit, about twenty miles north of Mount Rainier, in the Cascade Range, is a small stretch of picturesque open country known as Summit Prairie in the Natchez Pass. In this prairie, 
during the autumn of 1853, a camp of immigrants had encountered great difficulties. A short way out from the camp, a steep mountain declivity lay squarely across their track. One of the women of the party exclaimed, when she first saw it, Have we come to the jumping-off place at last? It was no exclamation for effect, but a fervent prayer for deliverance. They could not go back. They must either go ahead or starve in the mountains. Stout hearts in the party were not to be deterred from making the effort to proceed. Go round this hill they could not. Go down it with logs trailed to the wagons, as they had done at other places, they dared not. For the hill was so steep the logs would go end over end, and would be a danger instead of a help. The rope they had was run down the hill, and turned out to be too short to reach the bottom. James Biles, one of the leaders, commanded, Kill a steer. They killed a steer, cut his hide into strips, and spliced the strips to the rope. It was found to be still too short to reach to the bottom. The order went out, Kill two more steers, and two more steers were killed. Their hides cut into strips, and the strips spliced to the rope, which then reached to the bottom of the hill. By the aid of that rope, and the strips of the hides of those three steers, twenty-nine wagons were lowered down the mountainside to the bottom of the steep hill. Only one broke away. It crashed down the mountain and was smashed into splinters. The feat of bringing that train of wagons in, with the loss of only one out of twenty-nine, is the greatest I ever knew or heard of in the way of pioneer travel. Nor were the trials ended when the wagons had been brought down to the bottom of that hill. With snail-like movements, the cattle and men becoming weaker and weaker, the train crept along, making less progress each day, until finally it seemed that the oxen could do no more. It became necessary to send them forward on the trail ten miles, to a place where it was known that plenty of grass could be had. Meanwhile, the work on the road continued until the third day, when the last particle of food was gone. Then the teams were brought back, the trip over the whole ten miles was made, and Connell's Prairie was reached at dark. In the struggle over that ten miles, the women and children had largely to take care of themselves, while the men tugged at the wagons. One mother and her children, a ten-year-old boy, a child of four years, and a babe of eight months, in some way were passed by the wagons. These four were left on the right bank of the river when the others had crossed. A large fallen tree reached across the river, but the top on the farther side lay so close to the water that a constant trembling and swaying made it a dangerous bridge to cross on. None of the four had eaten anything since the day before, and but a scant supply then. But the boy resolutely shouldered the four-year-old child and deposited him safely on the other side. Then came the little tot, the baby, to be carried across in his arms. Last came the mother. I can't go, she exclaimed. It makes me so dizzy. Put one hand over your eyes, mother, and take hold of me with the other, said the boy. They began to move out sideways on the log, half a step at a time. Hold steady, mother. We are nearly over. Oh, I'm gone, she cried. 
as she lost her balance and fell into the river. Happily, they were so near the farther bank that the little boy was able to catch with one hand a branch that hung over the bank while he held on to his mother with the other hand, and so she was saved. It was then nearly dark, and without knowing how far it was to camp, the little party started on the road, tearing on the bank of the river only long enough for the mother to wring the water out of her skirts. The boy carried the baby, while the four-year-old child walked beside his mother. After nearly two miles of travel and the ascent of a very steep hill, they caught the glimmer of camp lights. The mother fell senseless, utterly prostrated. The boy hurried his two little brothers into camp, calling for help to rescue his mother. The appeal was promptly responded to. She was carried into camp, and tenderly cared for until she revived. There were one hundred and twenty-eight people in that train. Among them, as a boy, was George Himes, who for many years has been secretary of the Oregon Historical Society. To him we are indebted for most of this story of pioneer heroism. End of chapter 15